You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Jack Lewis. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Later in the program, we have the latest edition of Deep Dive, Limestone Post and WFHB Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, going whole hog on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature, but first your local headlines. The Bloomington City Council Committee of the Whole Climate Action Resilience Committee met on February 21st to continue their discussion on phasing out gas-powered machinery. Chair of the committee, Dave Rollo, introduced the discussion and summarized their objectives. This committee has been discussing this topic, and it is, as I said, a component of our climate action and resilience uh, plan. Um, And so this committee is meeting in order to evaluate the phase-out of uh, leaf blowers um, in the city uh, as per the plan, and the plan uh, discusses this uh, this type of um, strategy under TL1L, uh, and you can find that in the packet. I believe people have this packet that's been distributed to you. And the, the goal is to reduce citywide off-road and lawn equipment annual emissions to below 35,000 metric tons. Uh, emissions from off-road equipment like construction and lawn equipment comprise a significant portion of fossil fuel consumption in Bloomington. Reduction of fossil fuel off-road equipment use is associated with improved emissions, emissions as well as improved air quality, particularly for the users of the equipment. And then it links a study from Edmunds.com, which actually leads to a page that doesn't exist. But I found the page, so we'll, that will be, need to be corrected. Um, but and then it goes into actions, and the actions are to replace city off-road uh, and lawn equipment with electric and low-carbon fuel alternative options, uh, and developing incentive programs uh, for uh, for the city and the community. City Attorney Stephen Lucas spoke on behalf of Public Works Department Adam Wasson about the department's machinery. Uh, Mr. Wason apologized for not being available tonight, but did provide a list of equipment, uh, gas-powered equipment that Public Works uh, currently has, uh, is still working on, a, on an inventory of their electric equipment. Uh, generally speaking, he, he shared with me that they are working on transitioning their equipment um, and expect to make uh, several purchases this year for many of the smaller handheld uh, types of equipment. Uh, he mentioned, I believe, the uh, larger chainsaws and the uh, surface grinders and uh, other concrete saws that they have as equipment that uh, they didn't think they'd be able to uh, uh, replace uh, currently uh, this year. Uh, said many of the issues they had experienced in the last year or two uh, in um, uh, replacing their gas-powered equipment had to do with supply chain issues, uh, just availability. 
Um, uh, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else you shared. I, I, I think that was everything. Parks and Recreation Operations and Development Division Director Tim Street gave an update on the Parks and Recreation Department's transition to battery-powered machinery. Briefly, I would say really for the last three or four years, we've been making efforts to replace uh, gas-powered equipment with battery equipment where we can. Um, definitely have some similar feelings to Mr. Wason that um, you know, our urban forestry crews, the larger chainsaws, some of those things we don't feel uh, are quite there yet with the technology. But what we have seen in the last three years is that um, the technology seems to be coming a long way. Um, battery life seems to be getting better. Uh, and we're able to rely on battery-powered equipment more and more. Uh, I think we're at about 20% battery now. Um, we try to tell our staff to grab those first and rely on those first, and then the gas-powered equipment is more of a backup. Uh, probably most significantly this year, we are getting three uh, zero-turn battery mowers. Uh, we haven't felt like the technology has quite been there in recent years to, to try that out, but we got a demo of one. Um, in coordination with the ESD department last year at Switchyard Park and felt like the time was right uh, to, to give that a try for a few locations that we have. Um, I will say Parks does rely a lot on outside contractors uh, for mowing as well. Uh, a lot of our parks are mowed through a contract, um, but we are trying, you will see the zero turn mowers in use uh, when they arrive this spring at uh, Rose Hill Cemetery, uh, Bryan Park, and at Switchyard Park. So we'll be giving those a try. Um, they do come with, you know, we've had to do some extra electric work as well in the places where those will be stored and charged um, to set up the appropriate um, voltage and amperage and separate breakers for the chargers um, to charge those. So, um, you know, we consider this a, a real trial run of that technology to see uh, how it's going to work for us. Um, but overall, we're, we're increasingly pleased with how battery equipment operates for you know, custodial staff, when they go to a park and need to blow out a shelter um, and things like that, uh, string trimmers have been working pretty well. Um, the backpack blowers have been working pretty well. It's some of the more heavy-duty equipment that we're still feeling out, whether we feel like it's up to the performance standards for us at this point. Next, Rollo shared findings from the survey that they sent out to learn more about how stakeholders use gas-powered and electric machinery. So the question first was, does your business use electric equipment when available? Um, two respondents, uh, three respondents were no, one was some, and then two were yes. Is your, if your business does not use electric equipment, what are the primary reasons for using gas-powered or two-stroke oil-gas mixture equipment instead? Uh, price point, efficiency, consistency, and overall more reliable, ease of maintenance and, and initial cost, Electrical equipment has not come far enough. It doesn't work as well and doesn't run for nearly as long. The quality of the equipment is not all the way there. To keep up with the usage during the day, it is going to take time for it to catch up. Um, for certain heavy-duty uses, gas equipment is still necessary. Uh, doesn't hold charge long enough, can't uh, recharge mobily. Uh, the third question is, what would it require for you to switch to some or all of your equipment to electric? Improvements in weather conditions, reduced cost, better technology, run times, another better technology. Uh, this stuff is relatively new on the commercial side to hold up to the amount of time it would be used. The addition, additional cost to, to implement all of it with charging station 
how to charge it on the job and, and service providers. Funding would take care of replacing most equipment. For a few items, we would need the technology to advance a bit more as it relates to power and battery life. And then better technology and mobile charging is an answer. Uh, question four is, which pieces of equipment would be the most challenging to switch to electric? Heavy equipment? Fertilizer application machines, none exist, and lawnmowers, um, price. Lawnmowers, leaf blowers, string trimmers, chainsaws, leaf vacuums. Mowers and blowers, chainsaws, heavier duty lawnmowers, bush hogs. We have had good success with blowers and trimmers, large mowers, uh, equipment. The Bloomington City Council Committee of the Whole Climate Action Resilience Committee will meet again in one month to explore how other cities have implemented similar ordinances and to meet with other stakeholders like MCCSC, Indiana University, construction companies, etc. You're listening to Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. This month, we are looking into the housing crisis. Next month, we will address possible solutions. Last week, we looked into how Bloomington lacks the supply of housing units to keep up with the demand of the people living here. This low supply paired with the high demand of the college town leads to competition over the housing market, which can lead to people taking what they can get and settling for and getting stuck in lower quality housing. We talked to Bloomington resident Keelan Walser about her experience renting in town and a recent mold crisis she dealt with Walser looked into taking legal action against her landlord, but was unable to find any lawyers in town willing to take her case. It's not technically illegal, as I kind of said. Like, it, it does have to do with um, habitability, and you have a warranty of habitability when you move into an apartment. Um, and if your landlord does not provide a habitable house, uh, you have certain rights in that situation. Um, but unfortunately, there's not like encoded in, into law, like this level of mold is considered to be unacceptable. That, that does not exist. This week, we look deeper into the lack of legal recourse tenants have living in Indiana. According to a report done by the IU McKinney School of Law, Indiana faces an increasing number of substandard rental properties. The report, titled A Decent Place to Live, was conducted by law student Jacob Purcell and was published earlier this year. The report says, quote, The problem is perpetuated by landlords who fail to fix uninhabitable properties and evict a disproportionate number of tenants, all while still collecting tenants' rents. End quote. Purcell writes that in Indiana, the worst offenders are usually institutional landlords or landlords using corporate law to allow them enhanced protections. 
These landlords are typically located out of state and backed by an investment fund. The report says that these problem landlords often own several multiple family apartment complexes. Indiana has a negative reputation for the lack of renters' rights. For instance, renters do not have the right to withhold rent to force landlords to repair substandard housing units. Indiana is one of five states that do not allow tenants this right. Renters in Indiana don't have the right to a defense attorney in eviction cases. According to a news report by the Indy Star, quote, the vast majority of tenants have to represent themselves by seasoned attorneys, end quote. According to the report, this problem is not unique to Indiana. It's a nationwide issue with 90% of landlords having an attorney and 90% of tenants not having an attorney, a statistic taken from a 2015 research paper conducted by the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Despite the lack of power tenants possess in Indiana, renters do have rights that fall under the jurisdiction of state or local governments. Housing for Hoosiers is a renter resource program that provides educational information about tenant landlord rights in Indiana. Housing for Hoosiers published a list of your rights as a renter. It says that you have the right to a habitable place to live, meaning that it's safe and clean and in compliance with local housing codes. Furthermore, the landlord is responsible for upkeep and must maintain common areas. As a renter, you also have the right to privacy and the right to enter your home at all times. You have the right to the return of your security deposit within 45 days if you leave the rental property, quote, in good order when your lease ends. Lastly, you have the right to legal action. Housing for Hoosiers recommend that you speak with a tenant's rights lawyer to evaluate your options before pursuing legal action, especially if your landlord is invading your privacy, failing to fix appliances, and failing to provide adequate heat and hot water. Last week, we shared with you Keelan Walzer's experience renting a moldy unit in Bloomington. A series of untreated leaks led to a serious mold problem, which Walzer realized was affecting her health. After her ceiling collapsed, revealing black insulation and mold patches, Walzer wanted to take legal action for damages to her health and her belongings. Keelan documented the moldy room with photos and videos and took a piece of insulation with her as proof to use as a mold sample. And so these, these maintenance workers, I'm like, this is clearly mold, right? Like in my ceiling. And they were basically like, yeah. So they're, um, I, I got all the stuff that I could out of my room, essentially, and they helped me push all this insulation-covered desk and whatnot. Yeah, I, it was disgusting to deal with, quite frankly, not only just because of the mold, just because it's construction materials on all of my belongings. And um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I was talking with them, and they're, and they're like, you know, tearing out the ceiling, and, and there's very clear patches of... Um, mold on the uh, support beams of the ceiling it's in the walls there was there so i probably had at least three or four separate leaks um while i was living in that apartment but there was one by this one window in my bedroom or sorry there was a patch of mold by this um window in my bedroom and there had been no leaks n even near that spot like that was the far probably the farthest spot in the room from any of the leaks and there was just a patch of black mold, like very clearly, like on the paneling of the wall. And so I've, I've got videos and pictures of all of this. I gathered as much evidence as I could that day just because I knew I would have to prove that I lost all of my stuff and prove that there was mold in general, et cetera, et cetera. 
Walzer said she reached out to seven law groups about the mold in a rental unit, and each one told her they would not take on her case. And so after um, this all happened, I, um, I didn't really want to sign the mutual release of my lease because I didn't really quite yet understand what was legally being said in that document. And I didn't want to sign away my right to potentially pursue mm -hmm. legal action with this rental company. I started contacting lawyers. I started asking around. I talked with um, higher up members of my new apartment complex and they gave me a couple different resources. There's this one um, resource called Hand that mm -hmm. does deal with mold. Unfortunately, I didn't, I wasn't able to do too, too much with them. Mm -hmm. But I contacted um, six personal injury lawyers and they all rejected me with varying degrees of niceness, even though I have probably the craziest case of this that I personally have ever heard of in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. She learned from one of her lawyers that although having mold in a rental unit is not illegal, it is illegal to not provide a habitable unit. One personal injury lawyer did sit down and talk with me for an hour, though, for free, which was very kind. And he had gone through something similar in college where he had such severe fatigue symptoms that he was falling asleep in the middle of his um, law school classes. And he was a very like hardworking, you know, motivated guy kind of thing. So, and he was getting enough sleep, so it really didn't make any sense. And so, I think he really wanted to help me. And uh, I spoke with him, and he was, you know, giving me all these symptoms that I should watch out for. And there were some things that I didn't even, I hadn't even quite connected with, like my skin irritation to the mold yet, things like that. He also told me that the reason this was so tricky to pursue legally was because mold and mold counts are not really codified into law in terms of legality. So it is not technically illegal for an apartment to have mold in it because all air has mold in it, but it, it does have to do with habitability because you can't live in an apartment that's making you physically sick, but at the same time, Everyone has, well, not everyone, but people can just have random allergies, right? Mm -hmm. And so I now have a really extreme sensitivity to mold um, where normal, quote, normal levels of mold in a home for some people would probably trigger my allergy. And that, that is a little bit tricky legally. He also told me that these apartment companies, if you do decide to pursue it legally, can pretty much always find a medical doctor that will say that mold-related illness is not real and that there's really not much evidence to back it up. Now, I had a really good experience with my um, personal physician where she believed me straight out and gave me some advice about how to um, you know, fight this, which is essentially not to expose yourself to it more and to not live there and to take it easy for a long time, which is what I've been doing, but I will probably have symptoms related to this and be triggered by even small amounts of mold for years, mm -hmm. most likely. So this is going to affect the course of my life, essentially, for a yeah. while. And um, he, uh, that lawyer also told us that essentially I, I do have damages and what happened to me is illegal um, to, to try to, you know, because they, they, essentially the apartment complex was negligent in not taking care of the leaks in a timely manner and then not actually investigating if 
there were any issues with mold and that my damages would probably be in the tens of thousands if I were to um, pursue it. <clears throat> but unfortunately, the cost to actually litigate it would be hundreds of thousands. And so that order of magnitude kind of difference makes, an, um, makes it so that these lawyers do not want to take on their case, on my case. Tonda Radawan is the coordinator of the Housing and Eviction Prevention Project. This organization offers free legal advice, mediation services, and housing-related social service referrals to Monroe County residents facing eviction. Radawan noted that tenants are seeing rent dramatically increase. She said that many local residents can't find a place to live within their budget. And, and the places that are getting built, they're not affordable. Like, I don't even know what affordable is. I've talked to families that grew up here, maybe they're second generation here, and they can't live in their hometown because they can't afford it. Radawan explained how individuals who are cost burdened, meaning they pay more than 30% of their income on rent, are at risk of being evicted. She laid out what that might look like and how the eviction can hold them back from getting accepted by future property owners. But let's say you have income. You probably are already working two jobs. You know, you might or might not have a partner who's also working a job. You may or may not have kids. You're already doing everything you can in all of the available time that you have to try to make money to pay your rent. Um, you may have had to fix your car and put gas in your car to get to work so maybe you paid for food and gas before you paid your rent. Or you might have paid, decided, oh shoot, I do need to keep the lights on so maybe you paid utilities. And so the reason why you got behind on rent is because you had to pay for things like food and lights. And so then you're in a situation where you can't get caught up or you got sick because you got COVID and you had to quarantine for two weeks and that two weeks then put you over the edge of losing everything um, or losing that, you know, being that two weeks away from, you know, having your finely meshed <laughs> safety net. Um, so then you try to work things out with your landlord and maybe they are willing to do a payment agreement or they've worked with you in the past but it just gets to a point where then they file an eviction lawsuit so if they file a lawsuit you automatically owe more money because you probably have a lease that says if you have to take it to court you have to pay attorneys fees. and depending on what apartment complex you live in that's going to be $300 to $500 just tacked on. Even, even if then you can come up with all the money to get caught up, you then have to come up with another, you know, three to $500, and they're probably late fees. In July of last year, Indiana passed the eviction ceiling law, which allows for the ceiling of evictions that were dismissed, ruled in the tenant's favor, or overturned on appeal. Radawan says this is a step in the right direction for tenants struggling to find a place to live with an eviction on their record. However, Radawan explained that renters who were not evicted but rather voluntarily surrendered, it does not seal that eviction. 
She said that renters with an eviction on their record typically have a difficult time finding the next place to live. She outlined what renters encounter when they go looking for the next housing opportunity. Well, you go to look for the next place, you encounter that there's nothing available. Like you can't find a place to rent. Um, part of it is because, um, you know, we're on a leasing cycle where most of the rentals are July, August. Um, you also chip would need to have money for first month's rent and security deposit. You'd have to pay the application fees and you'd have to pay a credit or pass a credit check. And then property management as part of that credit check might run a my case search and they see that you have an eviction. And even though you weren't evicted, you agreed to voluntarily surrender. It doesn't seal that eviction. You have to, you know, luckily now in Indiana, July 1st was when the eviction sealing law passed. So that, you know, people were pushing for that for many, many years. Um, but that's on your record. And that is a barrier to getting accepted for an apartment that might have seven other people trying to get in. Tune in next Wednesday at 5 p.m. for a deeper dive into Monroe County's housing crisis. Next, going whole hog on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Today, we're going to switch species. We usually talk about scammers and swindlers, homo sapiens who prey on other homo sapiens. This time, we're going to talk about sus scrofa, also known as wild boars or feral hogs. Why are we warning about wild boars? Because the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates there are at least 6 million of them running around the United States, and they've spread to 39 states, including Indiana. A feral pig isn't like the kind that gives you your morning bacon or chops for dinner. If you see one, you'd better beware. Wild hogs can weigh two or three hundred pounds, grow as much as five feet long and three feet tall, and they can run faster than you can. They're mostly black and have straight tails, not the cute little corkscrews farm pigs have. The males have sharp tusks that grow continuously and can be very dangerous if you or your pets encounter one up close and personal. 
This invasive species is very smart and mostly active at night, so they can move in without being noticed. Males are solitary, browsing an area of about 10 square miles. Females and piglets travel in groups called sounders. A sounder can be as large as 30 pigs. The USDA estimates these uncontrolled porkers do at least $1.5 billion of damage every year, and University of Georgia researchers say it may be more like $2.5 billion. Wild hogs damage farm crops, contaminate water supplies, and carry diseases. They ruin pastures and forests, interfering with other wildlife and stressing the environment even more than it already is. And they do invade cities and towns, damaging parks, lawns, gardens, golf courses, and even cemeteries. Why should we worry about them? Because they're here, now. Texas has by far the largest population, but feral hogs are spreading northward, and climate change may be speeding that up. In 2017, they were reported in three Indiana counties, but now they've been found in nine. Jackson, Washington, Orange, Martin, Dubois, Spencer, Pike, Warwick, and Lawrence County, just south of Monroe. So what can you do about them? Well, if you see a wild boar or find any signs, tracks, shallow muddy wallows in wet areas, rubbings on trees or power poles, report it to the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. It's illegal to possess or transport a live wild boar, but it's okay if they're dead. Trapping or licensed hunting is legal from March to October on public land or any time on private land and you have to report each kill to the DNR. And yes, you can cook them. There are lots of recipes out on the Internet. That's all, folks. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.